Welcome to It's All Poetry with me, Nicole Cloutier, your host, copywriting mentor, and lifelong worshipper of words in their many beautiful and ever-changing forms. On this podcast, we believe that words are magic and that you and I and everyone else all have the innate ability to wield that magic well. Our main topic is words, from marketing and politics to spellcasting and poetry. We'll even get a little nerdy with some etymology and linguistic history every now and then. In short, words are everything. They make up our stories and the worlds we live in, so let's look at them, hold them, turn them over in our hands, you know? Get to know them so that we can use them with intention, which is exactly what we do in every episode. To stay connected, make sure you subscribe and check out all the links in our show notes. Now, let's get on to today's episode. Okay, for everyone listening, I have Rachel Stravelli on the line. Um, and Rachel and I are going to talk about a topic that I am so, so excited to dive into, which is the language of dreams. I'm a big dreamer, so <laughs> I'm so excited to chat about this with you. Um, and also we'll talk a bit about psychic and intuitive words and also the relationship between reader and writer because that's such a beautiful relationship. So Rachel, before we get into it, can I ask you to introduce yourself and tell the listeners who you are? Yes, thank you, thank you. So I'm Rachel Stravelli. I live in Greenville, South Carolina, and I'm the author of the book, Talk to the Trees. I'm an intuitive guide. I am an avid dreamer, and I love most things related to books and creative art making, all of those things. I also am a gardener, and I'm deeply connected to the natural world, so that always influences the things I'm interested in and the things that I like to talk about. And also it really frames how I see the world as well. Yeah. And those are also connected. And I think we're going to mm-hmm. we'll be able to touch on like all of that in our conversation today. So I'm really excited. So so the first thing I want to chat with you about is this concept of a dream language and how it varies from person to person. So first of all, like how... To, to you, how does the language of dreams differ from our waking understanding of like language the way you and I are talking right now? Yes, yes. So I could easily, instead of the word language, use something like mythology or symbolism. And it would still have the same meaning as where I'm going. And and I'm sure there's going to be more with the, the actual word language too. So everyone dreams whether you remember it or not like scientists have found when they hook your brain up to the electrodes and they're measuring it there's dream activity happening but 95 to 98 percent of us forget them almost all the time and and then some of us remember them and some of us remember them more often and even listening to this is going to make your likelihood of remembering your dreams tonight increase. So that to me is the funny, beautiful, magical thing about language. It's not dream language, but us talking about dreams will make you more likely to remember your dreams. And this is also shown like in any dream interpretation book, they will mention that this is a very common occurrence. Mm, I love that. It almost, it makes it seem like, like once you start remembering your dreams, it's hard to stop because you constantly are reminded yes. that you can remember your dreams. And so yes. sometimes, to be honest, Rachel, I get exhausted. Like I'm like, oh, I would have a dreamless night because I'm just, I'm so tired. <laughs> so much less restful if I'm like dreaming. Um, I know that can be true. Um, and yeah, it's funny. I feel it's as if it's an invocation almost of, if you talk about dreams, all of a sudden your subconscious is like, uh, oh, oh, me, me, raising its <laughs> hand being like, I'll send down a dream. I would love to share with you. And so many years ago, I was a vivid dreamer all my life. And as a child, sometimes I would have prophetic dreams and that felt really interesting and intriguing. And whenever I wanted to learn more, I would go look at books about dream interpretation and what I found, though, was that 
you pick up a dream dictionary off the shelf at the bookstore or download it onto your Kindle and read it. And they'll say something like, if you dream of the seashore, it means this. If you dream of a dog, it means this. If you dream of a bowl, it means this other thing. And I'm sure some decent people came up with these ideas. And yet each person has their own personal experience and your own mythology, if you will, so that the language of what the symbols and words and events in your dreams mean are different for you than they are for me. So I, I love animals and I've been attacked by a dog before. And so when I dream of dogs, I'm going to have a very different experience. It's going to mean something very different than a dog trainer or a dog breeder or someone who hates dogs. Hmm. And then there might be the person who's super passionate about dogs. They own a pet supply store. And yet a dream dictionary will have the same thing for all five of these types of people, even though each one of us has a different experience of relationships with dogs. Yeah, that makes sense. And a, a lot of, I feel like a lot of these books, they come from Freud, right? Or the idea oh, yeah, a lot of dream symbolism. But I do believe, um, it's been a while since I've, I've read that, but I do believe he said something kind of similar to what you're saying, which is, you know, it, it does matter what your personal experience is. Like there is a collective subconscious and Young talked about this, mm -hmm. right? There is a collective subconscious, but also like yes. your, your past matters too. Like it's too. Yes, um, exactly. So, yeah. Yes. So. And I like to think of your dreams is your subconscious talking to you. Is that, and some of it is from the collective subconscious and, but usually most specifically, since we take things personally, it's our personal subconscious that, wants to tell something and one broad example of something that I want to share with the listeners so when I dream of a childhood home what I have learned which I never found in any book I just figured it out from tracking and following and interpreting my dreams for years is whatever's happening in my life there's a core memory or belief or mindset that was established in that time period that I'm currently working on something that relates to that. So it's almost as if when people talk about mapping the brain and they'll be like, oh, well, this, when we did this, it lit up this part of your brain. So when you're dreaming of your childhood home, it's like that part of your brain is lit up. So for example, last night I dreamt of not my first childhood home, but my second childhood home. Mm -hmm. And as I was reflecting on it, I kept thinking, oh, I'm doing a lot of work with um, exploring new options in my business, new things that I'm going to offer. And so there's a lot of, I'm coming with the attitude of a blank slate. And what do I want to create that feels really genuine to me that also serves others? And it feels very much like, breaking new ground and so for me to dream of this second childhood home this morning I spent a lot of time reflecting on what are the beliefs and ideas that I think of my first memories I think of with that childhood home and I've already started piecing together why I think that dream came to me yeah that's beautiful um yeah my, I had a terrible dream last night. I had a Aww. dream that an ex was like telling me all the reasons I don't deserve to be happy. <laughs> That's so terrible. Um, that like, oh my God. <laughs> well, uh, so do you care if we spend some time on this yeah, dream? Let's do okay, it. Okay, cool. Let's do it. <laughs> so, so the other interesting thing about when people show up in our dreams, to some degree, they represent who they are. But also they represent what we think of almost like what is their stereotype or what is their archetype. And so you may or may not have certain things you think of him beyond ex-boyfriend, but, but uh, my immediate thought is, oh, there's a part of you that still is a little bit 
wondering, oh, do I deserve to be happy? Do I deserve to be loved? Do I deserve this? And no judgment to you because we all have a part of us that occasionally sure. feels that way. Yeah. And and so it's like this ex, yes, he represents him to some degree, but he also represents a part of you as well. Mm. All right. Yeah. <laughs> Do you That's... remember, oh, what was your, how did you react to him? Do you remember that? Very defensively. I was very Okay. like, angry and confused and. Yeah. And well, it makes me think I'm going to hold you gently with love in my heart and think, so if there's a part of you that feels, oh, you don't deserve, Nicole doesn't deserve to be happy. There's another part of you that thinks, how could I feel this way? That's ridiculous. It's almost this internal conflict happening within you. And oh, now I'm getting the good goosebumps. My my intuition is telling me now also, you are reaching through, breaking through like a barrier or a mindset or a block that you have. And your subconscious is uncomfortable with that. And it's a little bit in the mindset of let's just stay where we are, where she's okay with being a little bit unhappy, or we're not sure if Nicole gets to be happy. I feel you're pushing through that and breaking through that. And it's almost, this is the last effort of that part of you to be like, no, 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 no let's stay how we were. <laughs> Oh, I love that interpretation. <laughs> Thank you. That felt really good. <laughs> oh, uh, you're yeah. welcome. No, that felt lovely. And it actually like kind of changes my feeling of the dream to be like more excited. Like, all yes. right, like here's the final push. Let's let's go. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Oh, that. I'm getting the goosebumps. That's good confirmation. Uh, I I have a dream pattern that repeats that when it happens, even though it feels very much maybe like your fight where it's you wake up and you feel terrible whenever this pattern happens it shows me i'm breaking through boundaries i'm making making new ground so uh, uh, actually a dramatic emotional dream i think a lot of times we assume oh this is bad news mm. but what i find is if you're doing personal growth personal development spiritual growth work it's actually very good news it shows you're on the right track because things are getting stirred up and changes are happening right it's like while you're sleeping you're still like kind of yes. moving through it you're not like exactly. sleep is not like a stop it's like a keep working in the background yes exactly oh i yeah that's Great. I love thinking of it like that. Last question before I, I have an, another kind of section of questions for you, but do you, are there any recurring like motives that you, like in those books you talked about, are there any that you mm -hmm. think that you do see a lot of if you talk to people about dreams? Um, yes. Like kind of mean the same thing or like some that <laughs> do seem to be more collective. Yes. So, and there are, if you Google, you can find the most common dreams in your country or in your state even. Mm -hmm. And so I look at those every now and again, just for fun. And so com some common dream motifs that show up again and again are things like your teeth falling out mm. or being chased. So those are very common. And what I understand is your teeth falling out. This has a lot to do with communication, how people see you and how you're expressing yourself. It's less to do with actual eating. Like if you're eating in the dream, it's possible. But most people that I talk to, the teeth dream, which is quite common, it's one of I think the top three or four most common things that people dream of. Mm. It relates to your perception of yourself and others perception of you because if you think about when you smile yeah. that's when people are seeing your teeth whereas like it or not there are perceptions about people who don't have teeth <laughs> or who are missing teeth or the teeth have fallen out mm -hmm. and also it's something when you're a kid that's that's normal for teeth to be falling out but as an adult we don't want to lose our teeth yeah no, we, I feel like teeth are such uh, self-conscious, like, yes. part of us. <laughs> um, like, that's why we go get them whitened. We get, like, right. caps. We get, <laughs> we get, 
We get braces. We get, I had braces. I had like metal bars in my mm-hmm. mouth when I was a kid <laughs> trying to move my yeah. jaw forward. It was so, <laughs> so like high tech. <laughs> yeah. So I guess not very high tech. It was just like a bar. <laughs> but, uh-huh. Yeah. Um, yeah. So we are pretty obsessed with our mouths. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> and I have had teeth dreams for sure. And I've had being chased dreams. I've had a lot of being chased dreams. More so when I was a kid, mm-hmm. I would get chased like through um, like the woods where I grew up a lot, usually by witches <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> or like some like <laughs> like Hansel and Gretel witch in the woods. Yes. Oh, <laughs> uh, okay. Well, uh, one thing that I think is super interesting is the idea of dreams as a creative resource. Mm -hmm. It's a place where we pull ideas. Um, I've woken up with like a line in my head, like you said, like a a line and and I've written from that line. Um, And uh, I did some research before this and some famous examples that we know of is Frankenstein by Mary Shelley was uh, originally came in a dream. I know the story is right. She was on that uh, like kind of impromptu writer's retreat and they were all writing scary stories, but hers originally came to her in a dream. Frankenstein. Um, and Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde also by uh, Stevenson also said the plot came to him in a dream, uh, which was pretty vividly represented, I guess. Uh-huh. And then uh, yesterday by the oh. Beatles, Paul McCartney said he composed the entire melody in a dream. For, for oh, <laughs> I've heard that. And I want to share two examples, not of writers, because it yeah. happens in other places too. So the creator of the sewing machine was trying to figure out what to do, how to create a sewing machine. And they had a dream that they were visiting Africa and there were all these tribes people with spears that had a hole at the top of the spear. And when he woke up, he thought, oh, the hole at that point in the needle and made the sewing machine based off of that dream. The creator of the periodic table was trying to figure out what to do, but not quite piecing it together. And then the visual of it came in a dream. And I find this is one of the coolest and or easiest ways to get our brains to work for us is I do this quite a lot. I will give my brain a problem or a situation to look into Uh when I go to sleep. And then wake up with the answer the next morning. So I got my son's name that way. I've gotten lines for emails that I send out. So when I send out an email, it's it's almost like an article about something that happened in my life that week. And I will just wake up and it's uh, like Paul McCartney. I'm putting <laughs> myself in the same room as him. It's like the words are ready to just like start rolling off my mouth, start rolling off my fingertips. <laughs> And I also, like I was mentioning before, us talking about dreams makes it more likely you will dream. If you start using your dreams in this way as a creative resource, it's a resource that you can use every day if you want to. And the more you do it, the more you trust yourself and see, oh, wow, here's more cool evidence of this happening. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I love that. Um, and yeah, exactly. It comes back to what we were saying before about uh, like if you're working through something <laughs> it, and you're like just a final push like towards the finish line, it can, you can do it in your dreams. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And apparently also Paul McCartney, he was so worried that he had like accidentally stolen it <laughs> oh <my laughs> that gosh. he like did a bunch of research for months to make sure that it came to him oh in a dream and wasn't like something he just subconsciously remembered from somewhere else. Wow, that's <laughs> yeah. funny. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so you mentioned emails, your son's name. Have there been any other writings that have come to you in dreams or any other ideas? Yes, I have not developed them all into pieces of work that I share. Mm-hmm. But I would say probably 80% of the fictional writing in my notebooks comes from my dreams directly. Mm -hmm. Most of the nonfiction, uh, that's probably more 50-50, comes from my dreams or I just wake up with it. So for example, it's not with my son. I didn't, it wasn't like someone came to me in a dream. Your son shall be called Wesley. (laughs) 
Armani, I just woke up with his name in my mind. And that's how, even if you don't remember your dreams, you can wake up and you just notice what you're thinking about when you wake up. And I'm trying to think if I have other things in my life where I've solved the problem of, I mean, I know we were going to buy a house and I had a dream that it was I woke up with the words, that's not our house. And we had already put money down on the house. And I told my husband, I said, I'm sorry, we're going to have to lose that money because this is not our house. And <laughs> he doesn't dream as much as I do. And he was a little bit like, oh my gosh. Luckily, it wasn't his dream home. He wasn't super attached to it. And um, when I was looking for preschools for my son, I got dreams about one that was not a good fit. Mm -hmm. And in my dream, the, the woman who was in my son's classroom, she was this snake lady. And so I pictured it from my son's point of view of like this little kid and then this looming snake lady who was so mean residing over the classroom. I also will have dreams very frequently. This is probably more my psychic gifts that come through and intuitive gifts. I'll have dreams for other people, friends or people I care about. And I'll reach out to them and I'll say, hey, I have a dream. Do you want to hear it? And they say yes. And then I say, this is what the dream was. And usually when that happens, they're going through emotional turmoil or some kind of decision point. And my dream is the perfect timing mm. to let them know, to either give them emotional relief or let them know how to make a decision. I help clarify because they weren't calling me to tell me their problem. You know, they're dealing with a problem and out of the blue, I call them and I say, Hey, here's what I got for you. And, um, so that I know a few of the people have been really pleased. There's two people who are coming to mind. One who there was this pet that she adopted that wasn't working out with their family. And I didn't know about it. And I had a dream from the dog's point of view. And so I called her up and I told her what the dog thought. And it helped her piece together the whole picture. And they realized this dog isn't a good fit for my family. Mm. But she was at the point in the decision making. She didn't know what to do because sometimes with an animal, there's a transition period and you just keep on all hanging out and everything smooths over. Yeah. But also there are times where nothing smooths over and it's, it's not transition period. It's just oil and water. These two don't mix. And, and the dream showed me it was oil and water. They weren't going to mix no matter how much time they had together. In fact, it would get worse. And so that was really helpful for her. And I think within three or four months after that, she found a dog that was a perfect fit for the family. Hmm. Oh, that's good. Yeah. So have you ever had anyone say no, they don't want to hear the dream? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm like, you're lost, honey. <laughs> Each their own. Maybe they don't want to know. I don't know if, um, why they say no, or if it's just, it's not in their comfort level, but I respect that because maybe they don't want to know. And yeah. so that's fine. Yeah. Yeah. And another question for you, because I, I, like I said, I dream a lot and I did have one dream where I dreamed I was shopping and I was buying these things for my sister. And in the morning, the first thing I did was I went and I got them, you know, like I got the things the dream was showing me to buy for her. And I was just like, I'm just going to trust this and do it. Um, uh, but a lot of times I do have trouble like trusting. Like, I don't know if I had had the dream about the house that you had, I don't know if I would have acted on it or if I would have kind of logic my way out of trusting yes. my dreams. Like, I guess I'm asking you, like, what advice do you have for kind of building that, that trust? Yes. Excellent. That's an amazing question. And my cat is being very vocal. So I apologize if some of you are picking up on that. I, so here's what I find. Luckily, when the house event happened, I had enough years of building up my trust muscle that I could say very clearly, this is a no for me and we need to walk away. And if I, 
even despite that, I still had a lot of discomfort because my husband didn't have that dream. And, and I was pretty much asking him to trust me. And we, this is not for us. We're in a different home now. That's a much better fit a hundred times better. And what allowed me to make that decision so firmly definitively is I spent, like I said, a lot of time building up the self-trust muscle. And so what I think it's similar to lots of other areas of life. If you wait until you need the exact important skill to develop it in that moment, you know, you can't run a marathon if today's your first day running. I mean, maybe physically some people could, but you're also going to be hurting at the end of it. And so you, you create a habit of building up that self-trust. So earlier when we were talking about asking yourself something for your dream mind, your dream state to give you the answer, if you start doing this with, with places in your life, situations that are small, not should I buy this house or not? Should I move or not? Should I get married to this person or not? Not big decisions, but little decisions like who should I reach out to tomorrow? Should I, for those who are writers who are listening, you know, should I introduce a new character or what should I do with this character? Start with things that if they don't turn out great a week later, it really doesn't matter. Or a month later, it doesn't matter. We don't want to start with things that will literally impact years of your life because it's too much strain to put on a, a muscle that you haven't really been building. Hmm. Whereas if you consistently work with your intuition or and your self-trust muscle, you get to the point where... I, so the instance with the house, I think that happened about five years ago. I'm even stronger now with things like that. And I will make bigger decisions that involve what for me feels like bigger discomfort of, I don't know what the effects are going to be. And I might not know for three or four months because I've had years of building this up. And so it allows me to have that deep self-trust because Sometimes when you make a big decision, there are also the moments where you not only you're wondering if you should have made that decision, but maybe everything is a signs point to know. And you're thinking, I made this decision based on self-trust. Now everything looks terrible. Um, Like a month, a month after we pulled out of that house deal, we had not found anything that house was still on the market. So we could have gone back to it. And my husband and I, we were fighting a lot because house hunting can be a stressful stressful. process. Yeah. 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 And we had been looking for over six months at that point and everything that we really loved got off the market so quickly. And so there were so many times for about a month where I thought, uh, if it wasn't for me, we could go back to that house and we would already know, oh, our move-in date is in a month and here we are and we have our great house. But I just knew I got to stay strong on this, even though we don't have the next house lined up yet. And I think it was about six or eight weeks after we put the offer on that house. I'd have to look back at the calendar. I don't remember exactly how long it was, but we definitely had a period of discomfort with both of us and tension in our relationship. And I tried really hard to not seem like some egomaniac, like, I know what I'm talking about. I know my intuition and (laughs) sorry, you don't believe me. (laughs) That's not really a good relationship if there's that kind of dynamic either. (laughs) Oh, thank you so much for sharing that. Yeah, that's a lot of great advice in there. but yeah, starting with something small, it's funny because we we don't always want to, we don't think of it when it's something small. You know, I don't think, right. like, let me ask the tarot cards, like, <laughs> uh, who I should g- give a phone call right now. <laughs> you know, right. I don't ask that. I ask them, like, <laughs> should I move to another city across the country? Right. <laughs> like, I only really come to them when I have these giant questions. And I'm using tarot as an example, but like, yeah. you know, dreams, like, I, you don't always think 
think to to practice in a small yeah. way. And so I love that advice and think it's really important. It's definitely something I'm going to try because I would love to uh, yeah, I dream I dream so readily, but I don't mm-hmm. really know what to do with them. So it's um, mm. definitely something I'm going to practice. So thank you for that. Yes, you're welcome. Yeah, and I love since dreams already are happening for you, that's a natural, easy move into that. Um, I have I have an online dream interpretation class that tells you more about how to work with your dreams and how to utilize them. And some of it's what I already shared here too of, you ask your question and you you notice the answers. And it, it really is true that if you have the practice and you build the muscle, then when the big moments happen, it's not as daunting because you think, okay, I already know what's a yes and what's a no for me. Yeah, nah, that's so good. Yeah, mm-hmm. and what that feels like, like in your body, like what's the yes and what's the yes. no. Yeah. Exactly. The uh. last year actually over the last two years, there were multiple occurrences where I was going to invest in working with coaches or going to events. And these were multi-thousand dollar investments, Hmm. some of them. And I asked my dreams and one of them, I was so ready to say yes. And the dream, my dreams made it very clear. You, this is not going to be the circumstance you thought with this woman. And so I said, no. And then there was another event that happened that my dreams were so clear. a Yes. Even though I hardly knew this person at all. Mm. And, and, and again, it's like, so I've had this habit of building up this muscle for me and knowing what's a yes and, and what's a no. And I don't question it really, because I know I've, I've, I've calibrated, I've got that understanding and it makes it easier for these big financial decisions. Yeah, which is so important. You know, I'm coming from uh, a world of marketing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so like uh, I'm on the other side of the screen writing sentences that <laughs> try to convince yeah. you to do things. Um, but I think if you have this kind of trust with yourself, this um, intuition of what's a yes and what's a no, it'll probably make you much less, much less susceptible to the tactics of the likes of me mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yeah. and my, my kind. <laughs> Um, no, I, I try to only work with people. I actually, um, like want to help sell things now, but like, but yeah, just like I'm thinking of like the marketing we encounter on a daily basis and Mm -hmm. like knowing what's a real yes and a real no from you can probably save you, you know, from making decisions. You know, I was about to say making decisions you regret, but I think that one thing that I want to call out here is that, uh, we can't see both timelines. Like we can't see the timeline we didn't take. <laughs> so yeah, you don't exactly. know, like, like regret, regret implies that the other timeline would have been better. And you never right. really know for sure. You never right. really know for sure if the other timeline is better, the other. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, yes. And, you know, I want to share. So I, I have a growth mindset about investing in things or experiences. And twice in the last year, I bought workshops that they were actually exactly what they were marketed as. So their marketing was on point. I found them to be terrible workshops. But the good news is, there's a few pieces of good news. One is, I always tell myself, no matter what, I'm getting something out of this, whether or not it's what I thought I was going to get. And so for the one group, it very clearly showed me don't invest in any of their more expensive programs because you don't like how they do this. Mm -hmm. And it reinforced for me the way they were presenting information I found was not good for people's learning styles. There were many people in the chat complaining about their presentation of information. And and it, it just reinforced for me as an educator and as a person who also loves learning of, okay, one, I know how to set up things to meet different needs of learning styles. So it it reinforced for me, that's a value I have. And I want to offer that when I experience that with other people in, and I'm creating experiences, but it also showed me for myself, it, it made me think I, 
I need to be aware of if I'm signing up for something, even if I'm so excited at what they're teaching, if their teaching style can't meet my needs, I'm not going to get as much out of it. And so it's almost like it helped me refine, become a maybe more savvy buyer to know, like, I know if I take a course and there's a group or a live component with it, I, I need to show up for this because that helps yeah. me learn. And for me, that helps tip the scales into this is a good choice. Whereas if it's just a class you take on your own time, that's not a good fit for me because I'm not going to do it. Yeah. <laughs> and, and so, so like both of those that some people might say, oh, that was a bad investment. I, I just told myself I'm learning something from this, whether or not it's what I paid to learn, I I'm going to get some kind of value out of it. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm, you're making me think of something. I want to take a moment to give everyone <laughs> a bit, a light copywriting tip, oh, you know, yeah, how, you know how sections of sales pages, they'll have like the, this is for, and this is not for oh, yes. lots of people use that section to, uh, manipulate. Like they'll be oh. like, this is not for you if you're not willing to put the work in, you know, like they'll oh, say something right. like that. And it's a little like, oh, okay, like rough. Like you don't need to be so aggressive. Um, the part, those parts of a sales page in a website, it's actually much, much more valuable if you actually say like, hey, this is not for you if you need a live component. Like to be actually genuine about like, like don't try to bring in people who don't, who aren't going to learn well from you. Right. Or I love when they say, this is how much time we anticipate you having mm. to do for this. Because I have had many times where I think, okay, I can do an hour a week. That's what they're expecting us to do. Yeah. Or if they're saying an hour a day, I almost never see that. But I think because I'm like, I don't have time for an hour a day. I don't care what you're doing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's good. Yeah. Good advice. <laughs> sales page tip. Impromptu sales page lesson. <laughs> All right. All right. I'm going to bring us back. Bring us back to, because um, you also work as a psychic, right? Yes. yes. Mm -hmm. So I want to pivot to that, which seems like very, like, like dreams and, and psychic and dreams, it all goes really well together, right? Into yes. intuition. Um, but I'm curious, like when you're doing psychic readings or when those messages start to come through, I'm curious what that is like for you, like on a language scale, like mm. are there, is it tricky to find words? Like, do you get more feelings and vibes and images and it's tricky to sometimes nail down the words or, um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, great question. So both of those are true. I do get a lot of feelings. I, I literally will feel in my body someone else's experience. Mm -hmm. And I will, and that's how we typically begin. And then I will start with saying, here's what I'm feeling. This is either an emotional component or physical. And I can't tell how I'm feeling it in my body, if it's actual physical pain or not. Um, and if it's emotional pain, typically it's symbolic and, and we dive into what is that emotional pain about or where does it arise or what are the events that occurred? And I do more perhaps of a back and forth dialogue with people, not always, but many times I'm sharing what I'm seeing and then I'm at or feeling and I'm asking them does this make sense to you? What does this feel like it means for you? Because at certain points in a session with someone, I am going to be carefully choosing words and really trying to find the exact right way to describe something. Because here's the interesting thing. Um, and you may appreciate this from doing marketing. And, and I appreciate this from being a writer. There, when you're writing a piece and there's a wordsmithing and you're looking to get the exact right words, that happens for me in session with people. I try to find the exact right best way of phrasing something because words really do matter. Mm -hmm. And similar before when I talked about like an invocation, some of the time the words people are thinking or speaking over themselves, it's it's like you're affirming whatever you want or don't want in your life. So a while ago, there was a client that I had who one of the issues we were looking into was a, a health 
issue that she had. She didn't use the word health issue. I forget what word she used, but she probably used a more stereotypical, like I was diagnosed with blah, blah, blah. And she mm -hmm. told me the thing. I forget what it was. And, and, you know, we'll just say chronic fatigue syndrome. It wasn't that, but it was something where anyone would hear it and be like, oh yeah, you've got such and such diagnosis. But what I told her that at a soul level that she needed to start calling it a health opportunity. Mm. And now there's a part of me, I'm smiling because I feel like it almost sounds like I'm putting spin on this, you know, yeah, I'm, like a the, <laughs> I'm the PR person for your health opportunity. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> but some of it was her health situation was creating so much emotional distress that was more than the physical distress. And so then she was faced with her body trying to heal from this circumstance and all of the emotions about it. And it's kind of like, <laughs> like, let's not kick you while you're down. Let's not add more on than you don't need to have. And even though it was kind of this ridiculous kind of PR spin, we were able to laugh about it. We were able to talk about it. And she was able to start seeing, oh, if I can have some emotional neutrality about this experience, this health issue, then every day she's not stressing about the health issue. Mm -hmm. And it's like stress hormones, they have a real effect on your body. And if your body's trying to heal, stress hormones are actually counteracting that. And so it was creating a mood lift for her and also allowing her to come to the situation and think about it more logically, more reasonably, more rationally, because she wasn't so emotionally charged about the circumstance. And many times when I'm meeting with someone, what I'll tune in on is the words they're using to describe a circumstance are making that worse for them. Mm. And, and so by me giving them a way of saying it differently, I feel like it's almost like I'm giving them that I think I can the little train that could kind of energy that really makes a difference. And if you know much about uh, psychology or mindset or or this idea of like alter ego, when you believe that you can do something or you tap into this alter ego, like superhero part of you, you can do much more then if from the beginning, you're like, yeah, well, this is what they told me is happening. So that's just how it is. I'm just going to give up. Y your emotional state can keep going a lot longer or break through and find new instances if you have that belief. And, and a lot of times it's just a tweaking of the words of how you're seeing a situation. Yeah. You've also talked about like the stories. I feel like we've talked about this a little bit, but the stories mm -hmm. and the narratives that people bring to the psychic mm -hmm. reading process, right? So mm -hmm. the, the stories that people show up with. Um, and like, do you find yourself having to, to adjust? It's kind of like the dreams, right? Like where um, symbology is different per person, depending on your memories and uh. your experience in this world, right? Like is the experience of getting a psychic reading different for someone, but depending on the stories they show up to you with. <laughs> yes. And it's more, I have to figure out where they're coming from. So we know. So for example, I had this one session with someone where I saw all these rocks that rolled up kind of like in the frozen movie where the no, I don't remember if they're trolls or what they are, but they can yeah. be in rock form. So when I saw that, I thought, well, this could mean one thing to me, but I should just ask her, what does this relate to you? Or what does this mean? And, and so there, there's almost always a process of me and that person figuring out, oh, what's our language that we're going to use? How much do I tell you what I see? And then you take it and run with it. Or how much do I tell you what I see? And then you tell me what that evokes for you. And then we go deeper from there. Uh, I, I kind of work in all the ways that I can on that spectrum, but for some people, I mean, I've had one or two cases where I told the person, I get one image, I tell them that image and they're like, 
oh my gosh, how do you know that? And they're like, no one else knows that about me. And then they talk to me for like 20 minutes about this pivotal experience in their life. And, and, and it's some of the time it's like, oh, I forgot about that. And I'm like, well, that's the first thing I saw and that we needed to breathe new life into or bring back or see like, have you put this dream on hold for the past 10 years because it felt too big, but that dream, like that's the first thing that showed up to our session was that dream that you've had for 10 years or 20 years. It's still kind of like, pick me, pick me. And, and, and so that happens sometimes, or like I said, there are sometimes more where I share a little bit, they share, I go deeper and, and there's more of a back and forth depending on what, what they want to cover, what they want to get out of our time together. Um, I definitely will know some of the time it's more metaphorical, the information that I'm getting. And some of the time it's literal, kind of like I said, with the body, I don't always know which one it is. So I give the information to the person I'm in session with. And then I say, look, explore both explore if this is literal explore if this is symbolic like take some time to sit with the information and explore it and see how it plays out for you mm. i first of all i love the idea of like the beginning of the session like part of it or part like a part of the background of the session being that you're figuring out what language the two of you speak together yeah <laughs> i think that that is like a beautiful <laughs> way to think about it of like okay how are we talking like how do yeah. we communicate which is just i mean that's good in any relationship right like every yeah. relationship has kind of different language rules and parameters um but yeah i i love 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 that uh, okay i want to talk to you i want to i want to pivot us because <laughs> you mm -hmm. and i have both been writing teachers writing professors yeah. you've talked a lot about creativity already today and um i have been <laughs> obsessed with georgia o'keefe lately like mm -hmm. obsessed with georgia o'keefe as uh an archetype and also like mm. and that made me kind of dive into her actual life story so i recently read her autobiography which is actually less an autobiography and more just like a collection of her thoughts and art <laughs> which wow. is perfect for georgia o'keefe like yeah. she's like i'm not gonna tell you all of my like life story and traumas i'm gonna tell you the important bits um but then also i'm reading her biography which is much more detailed um, and i'm in the middle of that but anyway the reason i bring all that up is because she often discusses um the like the importance of viewers giving meaning to her art like suggesting that the interaction between the artwork and its audience right is a part of the art itself and part of why i love this is because it means that art um whether that's writing or visual art or you know like it it has it's never done <laughs> like yes. as long as it exists like to be witnessed it, it keeps changing because every new person brings their story to it. Um, and, you know, I, I talk about this concept a lot. And when I was teaching, I talked about this concept with my students of like, hey, we're going to read this story. You are part of the process. And uh, the work is not necessarily done until you see it or read it. Um, so, yeah, what are your your thoughts on, I guess, the the story that viewers bring to a piece of art that they are witnessing. Yeah, I love I love all this topic and what it makes me think of. Well, first I want to bring back to before when you were talking about the silver lining, if our language is like this too, our public communication and, and all of the ins and outs and social media and news articles and all the things people say, it's like, language we're constantly evolving our language and it's constantly alive that's not necessarily an art form but but it still is going through that process of we're all viewing it and interacting with it and to me it feels very exciting and I remember this one moment in college so I was an English major for my undergrad and we interpreted we were reading a poem I forget who it was by now I loved all the imagery in the poem and it was very natural and beautiful. And I thought, oh, what a beautiful nature poem. 
and I shared my opinions and, and interpretation. And I remember my professor being like, that's wrong. This is a poem about, I don't know, sex or something. Yeah. And, and everyone, maybe not everyone, people laughed because they're like, oh, how could you be so wrong? They didn't say it like that. But that's that was kind of the whole feeling of it. Like, oh, you really missed the mark, Rachel. And I thought, no, I didn't miss the mark, actually. I think it's poor teaching to say there's only one interpretation of this poem, and this is the right one, even if that's what the poet said, because that is my opinion about when you create a work of art or whatever it is that you're creating and you put it out there, it's not only yours anymore. Yeah. And if a child had read that poem, there's no way they're thinking it's some sex poem. And mm -hmm. so I was reading it with this more innocent point of view. Even if the author, the poet really intended it to be that, I don't think it has to be only one way. And I, I like that we get to be a part of the process and evolve with it and interpret them how we wish and, and I think there are kind of common interpretations that seem like, oh, well, that's what most people think. So therefore, that's how we see it. But it's also possible that if culture changes dramatically, we can revise how we view a work of art or a piece of literature. Yeah. And I, I love that you brought up that classroom example because, you know, also as someone who um, was an English major, like there there is a lot of uh, like shame in getting it wrong. <laughs> I felt that a lot too, that there was like shame in not getting a poem, like not getting the point. Um, and I do think that I tried, that's part of the reason, like my own embarrassing moments similar to yours are part of the reason I tried to teach it differently of like, you're a part of this. Uh, yeah, because I think the art culture in general, it does tend to, to shame people for not like getting it or feeling like you have to be like, like you can't really get a poem unless you've like spent a year studying it, you know, <laughs> like that kind of mentality, I think, um, well, it's gatekeeping. It's gatekeeping yes. from art. Um, it is. It, yeah. It makes people feel like they can't, they can't truly really appreciate it or get it. Um, and I don't like that because to me, that's not the point of art and at least the art that I want to engage with. And I also think about not in that class, but with in a different class, I started making art for every poem that I was supposed to interpret for class. So I'd go home and doodle or play with pastels. And I found that was such a cool experience that I kind of just stumbled into. I've like maybe one time we had an assignment that would make a piece of a visual art that relates to this poem. And then I thought, well, I'm just going to keep on doing this because it was so good. And it made me see the poems differently. And it felt similar to you were saying, it's like you're a part of the process. All of a sudden the poem for me was not the poem on the page it was the poem and the art that I created. It had this richness to it that suddenly became more than the original piece. And it also makes me think about, I don't personally write fan fiction, but I know of it. And I know that the people who love it is this beautiful way of staying engaged with a piece of art that you enjoy and keeping it going and letting it have another life of its own that I think it just makes me feel the joy of life. And it makes me really happy to think, oh yeah, you can just make a piece of art that was inspired from another piece of art and just kind of keep this whole happy train going. Yeah, no, I love that. And I, yeah, and when you read like a response poem or res response art, mm -hmm. you know, and then you, like as a, as, a, as a reader to journey back through the conversation. And I love doing those rabbit holes of like, ooh, what is this in response to? And what is this in response to? And you just keep going, or what has this been influenced by? You know, mm, lots of poems will, uh, will, even like poems I write, I love, <laughs> like I'll know a poem is done if I, steal a phrase and put it in there <laughs> from someone else you know just like one little nod to someone before me 
Yes. Um, oh, that's makes so me fun. feel like, oh, now my poem's part of the conversation. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like elaborating on the conversation and adding a, a new generation to the conversation. <laughs> oh my gosh. I feel like jazz and then remixes and music, they do that too, you know? And it's fun. It's like you say, it's a way of you're part of the community and that art is now a part of the conversation because it's pulling in these other elements. Yeah. Oh my goodness. You're reminding me. I was in um, a workout class yesterday and they played a remix. Oh gosh, I'm not going to remember. It was from uh, like Dawson's Creek, I think. Like it was, uh -huh. like, it was a song that was popular um, back when Dawson's Creek was popular, which was when I was in high school or middle school, you know, um, and, and it, but it was a remix and I was like, I love this. <laughs> like it was, it was both nostalgic and also like new. <laughs> I was like, this is so fun. <laughs> that is so cool. Yeah. Love remixes and love covers. Mm -hmm. Um, all right. Oh, Rachel, this has been so, so awesome. <laughs> it's been such a great conversation. And I'm so grateful for you coming on here and um, sharing your expertise. And before I let you go, though, where can people find you if they want to yes. work with you or just learn more from you or read your book? Yes, yes. Wonderful. I'd love to stay connected if you're listening and you're like, she sounds cool. Uh, and so my website is rachelstravelli.com. And I'm on mm, the major social platforms. I was going to say most of them, but sometimes that changes. But I'm, I'm on Instagram. I'm on TikTok. I'm on YouTube. I'm on Facebook. I'm on LinkedIn. So yeah, the major ones, you can find me there with my name. And I periodically do workshops that are incorporating creativity and intuition and dreams and art making. So if that appeals to you, definitely reach out, see what I'm up to. Some are in person, but some are online. Mm. And I love working one-to-one -one with people. So please reach out if that, that appeals to you or piques your interest. Love that. And we will put um, a link to your site in the show notes so people can see the latest offerings whenever in time they are listening to this. <laughs> um, yes. Thank you, Rachel, so much. Um, I'm sure we'll talk again soon. Thank you, Nicole. Thank you. This was fun. Hey there, listener. So you may not know this about me, but I am a cancer rising baby, uh, cancer in my first house, in my astrological chart. Venus is also there. They're hanging out. It's something I used to kind of hate about my chart, to be honest, because I felt like it made me mm, too sensitive, uh, too uh, soft, too gentle. Um, but the more I've learned about astrology and as I've grown older, it is something that I've come to embrace. <laughs> and when I learned that being a cancer rising made the moon the ruler of my chart, I was, I was back in. I was ready to embrace it. So as your Cancer Rising friend, I have a little lunar magic to offer you. I created just last week a guide for writing your content by the phases of the moon. So when you think about it, not only are you affected by the moon's lunar phases, but so is your audience, right? So it's a good idea or it's an idea, something, it's an option. It's an option for you to use the moon's phases in order to plan your content, to write your content, like little lunar themes for every week of the lunar cycle, depending on what you and your audience is going through. So whether that's feeling a bit more introspective in the darker moon phases or like getting ready to celebrate and release things uh, when the moon is full. So this guide has um, practical magic, spell work, journaling prompts, both internal and external journaling prompts um, for each phase, for each of the nine phases of the moon. So from new moon to dark moon, uh, all the way through. And my hope is that by referencing this guide throughout the lunar cycle, you will be able to create content that feels creative and authentic and a bit more ritualistic and enjoyable. <laughs> So go ahead and grab your copy of the guide at nicolecopy.com slash moon. Thank you 
so much for listening to It's All Poetry. You have no idea what it means to me (laughs) to have you here. This podcast is recorded and produced and edited by yours truly. I've had to learn a lot of tech, (laughs) y'all. You can find all the resources and links from this episode in the show notes at nicolecopy.com slash itsallpoetry. The music you hear throughout is by Jack Pierce. And if you enjoyed this episode, there is a bunch of other stuff that you might want to check out from my weekly newsletter with marketing prompts to one-on-one copy coaching for your business to branding guidance uh, and more things that I'm not even aware of at the time of this recording because I add stuff all the time, but it's all right there at NicoleCopy.com. Thanks again for loving words with me. I'll see you next time.